this is Chris with the Saucer of Science without Kara. I'm just really doing a quick intro of this lecture by Joseph Graves, given at the University of Alabama on November 9, 2016, as part of the Alabama Lectures on Life's Evolution speaker series. Graves is an evolutionary biologist and professor and associate dean for research at the Joint School for Nanoscience and Nanoengineering at the North Carolina A&T State University and University of North Carolina at Greensboro. He's also the author of the books The Emperor's New Clothes, Biological Theories of Race at the Millennium, and The Race Myth, Why We Pretend Races Exist. His allele talk was called Biological Determinism in the Age of Genomics. The full video of this talk can be found on the UA College of Arts and Sciences Vimeo site. The Sausage of Science is produced by me and Kara for the, the Human Biology Association. You can find the organization on the web or Facebook or contact Kara or I on Twitter at Kara Akabach or Chris underscore L-Y. Here's Joseph Graves. Enjoy. Wow. Before I begin, let me first thank my hosts for inviting me here to the University of Alabama. I told Chris last night at dinner that I judged the political climate of a state by whether I've been invited to lecture there. For a long time, Alabama was on my list of places that haven't really advanced very much. And so now I can check off Alabama. Now, having said that, clearly a great deal of work is being done here by some very hardworking and courageous individuals to move forward the teaching of evolution in the state of Alabama. This is a very important enterprise because as one of my intellectual forebearers said, nothing in biology makes sense save in the light of evolution. So therefore, all topics that are impacted by top quality research in the biological sciences have to be driven by an understanding of evolution. And so if students are coming through universities in biologically based majors and they're not understanding evolution, then there is a real significant problem and they are handicapped with regard to what they can do in their professional careers. Now, I know of no other discipline that allows or no other topic where universities who claim to be top tier universities allow their students to walk through with handicapped preparations. The only two areas that I know of happen to be the two areas that I do work in. One of them is in evolution, and the other one is in understanding how racism structures social life. Those areas are routinely neglected in the preparation of university students, and quite frankly, that is unfathomable. Tonight's talk will follow more recent examples of my work, including this blog I wrote for this view of life in 2014, in which I examine the fallacies behind uh, Nicholas Wade's book. This second paper that this will follow was published in a special issue of the American Behavioral Scientist called Why the Non-Existence of Biological Races Does Not Mean the Non-Existence of Racism. Great is their sin, which you've already heard about. And also a new paper that was just accepted in Evolution, Medicine, and Public Health two days ago, and the title of this paper is Evolutionary Science as a Method to Facilitate Higher Level Thinking and Reasoning in Medical Training. This last August, I wrote Science and Social Justice for the Beacon blog. In this essay, I focused on the role that the enterprise of science has played 
in our societies. I provided a definition of social justice that relies on valuing human beings and their diversity. This referred specifically to various aspects of human identity, socially defined race, ancestry, gender, sexual orientation, national origin, and others that have been the subject of social subordination. Now you will notice that I don't use the term minority here when I talk about science and social justice because one's representation in the population has absolutely nothing to do with whether you're socially subordinated. Take, for example, women who actually are the majority of all societies and they are socially subordinated in all societies. So being a minority doesn't determine one's social status. It is questions of who has power and who does not. Accepting this definition suggests that you believe that all people have a right to equitable treatment, support for their human rights, and a fair allocation of community resources. In addition, this definition suggests that individuals should not be discriminated against or their welfare and well-being constrained or prejudiced on the basis of any of these identity features or any other characteristic of background or group membership. This idea is clearly a modern 20th century notion. It's really not found in the history of science as an enterprise anywhere in the world. For nowhere is there a better example of the violation of these principles than in the supposed scientific study of biological variation in humans, as well as the biological determinist program that was associated with that study. Americans routinely conflate socially defined and biological conceptions of race. And this happens, by the way, not just in the general public, but scholars from the humanities to the biological sciences disagree about the meaning of race. And this is precisely something that in the current conjuncture we really need to get clear about. And we need to get clear about it in a hurry. For this reason, the old racism that folks remember from the 1960s has sort of passed us by. And what we saw on Tuesday night as, as I was talking with uh, Chris last night at dinner was an example of the neo-racism in which individuals don't recognize that their behavior is racist. Okay? They, they simply don't see it. And this neo-racism, I think, results from this confusion between biological and social conceptions. Neo-racists often argue that because our species, anatomically modern humans, does not display biological races, racism cannot exist. This confusion, of course, is that racism results from and is reinforced by socially defined racial groups. Socially defined races exist precisely because of a social dominance hierarchy. Trayvon Martin was not killed because of the state of this or that genetic polymorphism within his genome, but because of deeply embedded stereotypes residing in socially defined race. Now, I have to plug this movie because I'm in it, um, but it's also a really good movie. Um, Profiled is the story of mothers who have lost their children to police violence in New York City. Now, many of you in the audience have probably heard of the national known cases, but since 2000, there have been over 200 murders of minority youth in New York City by the police. And this film documents the lives and the struggles of those people. Now, one of the least known facts in American society is that the most endangered human beings in our society are African-American females around 13 years old. The murder rate for these children is 60 times, 60 times that of European-American females at the same age. Now, I hate to say it, but when a European-American child goes missing, 
oftentimes we see a national outcry. We see media coverage 24-7. But 60 times as many African-American little girls go missing every year. And we don't ever see that covered in them. Certainly not as national news story. This is how race is lived in the socially defined context in the United States. Now, I argue that these little girls don't go missing because there is some inherently different or genetically determined difference causing African-American males to murder African-American females. Although there are people who argue this, I argue that this is one of the most saddest examples of the influence of institutional racism in the United States. It's not just about an integrated cup of coffee. Institutional racism kills people. It has been killing people since this society began. And I'm going to demonstrate other data in this discussion which illustrate exactly how institutional racism kills people. But let's talk about whether we have biological races or not. So I want to establish that before we start talking about the social implications of these socially defined groups. I begin by making or attempting to take the scientific high ground. And I do that by simply saying that claiming that biological races exist within the human species should rest on the relevant biological facts. That's what scientists are supposed to do. They're supposed to evaluate the data within the paradigms of their field and ask whether the data support one hypothesis or another. This requires that one employs a definition of what a biological race is, what they are, and with said definition weigh the data objectively. And it is providing a definition of what is meant by biological race that psychometrician and other modern claims for the existence of this category in humans fails. They simply assume that the socially defined groups are biological races. They never tell you what they mean by a biological race. They never tell you what things would we have to measure to determine whether such groups are biological races or not. They simply assume because people think that they're biological races, they must be. Now, Nicholas Wade, for example, in his book, Troublesome Inheritance in 2014, defined races as, quote, clusters of variation. Well, he's the first person to use that definition. And given that he's a formerly New York Times reporter, not an anthropologist, not a geneticist, not an evolutionary biologist, one wonders how he can suddenly purport to put forward a new definition that no professionals in the fields that actually study biological variation use. But it must be great to be Nicholas Wade. This differs from the way evolutionary biologists had previously defined biological races or subspecies. That definition was based upon the amount of genetic variation within versus between groups, or whether cladistically unique lineages could be defined within the species. So those are the two modern definitions. The earlier ones, essentialist and taxonomic definitions, were discarded by biologists a century ago. Most people don't realize that Charles Darwin actually doubted whether the human races defined by the naturalists of his time were real. Let us apply these generally admitted principles to the races of man, viewing him in the same spirit as a naturalist would any other animal. And this is the key point that Darwin makes. If we're going to talk about biological variation within the species, then we should be using the same definitions, consistent definitions across different types of animals. And this is precisely where I have been misquoted many times. 
So you can read in the LA Times, you can read in the New York Times, that Joseph Graves Jr. says there's no such thing as race. I have never once said that. What I have consistently said is that our species, anatomically modern humans, does not display biological races. And how could I say that unless I had some idea what a biological race actually is supposed to be? And I'll tell you, there are plenty of species that have biological races. We just don't happen to be one of them. And I'm going to demonstrate that in short order. In The Descent of Man and Selection in Relation to Sex, Darwin described the racial multiplication problem, from which 2 to 63 races were named, depending upon the traits that were used. So he called human races protean or polymorphic, and he noted that the physical differences used by naturalists to define races could have no significance. Because if they had significance, natural selection would have removed them a long time ago. Now, be aware of the fact that Darwin is making this prediction before the neo-Darwinian synthesis. So in other words, he doesn't have population genetics yet to validate his claim. But by the 1930s, we would have population genetics, and that's precisely what population genetics would tell us, that if these differences were so important, humans would have either fixed those differences in all groups, or they would have eliminated them. We come to people like Ernst Meyer, who wrote the very famous work, Animal Species and Evolution, and the revision of that called Population Species and Evolution. With that neo-Darwinian synthesis, which unifies natural selection with Mendelian genetics, evolutionary biologists now question the origin, significance, and maintenance of geographical variation. Ernst Meyer noted that the term subspecies, which is equivalent to geographical race, had come into common usage in the 19th century, replacing the notion of the variety, particularly after the publication of On the Origin of Species. He states, the concept of subspecies is fallacious. Species are not composites of uniform subtypes, subspecies, but consist of an almost infinite number of local populations, each in turn in sexual species, consisting of genetically different individuals. The difficulties of the subspecies concept are intensified if one considers the subspecies not merely as a practical device of the taxonomist, but also as a unit of evolution. The better the geographical variation of the species is known, the more difficult it becomes to delimit subspecies, and the more obvious it becomes that many such declinations or deliminations are quite arbitrary. What are the biological criteria for races in humans? People often confuse the notion that because there is geographically based genetic variation in specific traits, that that must mean that there are biological races. That's nonsense. That simply means that there's geographically based genetic variation. Now, how much of it it requires to become a subspecies or to have great differentiation is really the question. And as population geneticists, we have means to determine how much. And that's exactly what I'm going to talk about now. So um, American geneticist Sewell Wright addressed levels of genetic variation with a series of tools that he called F-statistics. These allow us to ask how different subpopulations are from each other and whether we should consider them biological races. So I'm going to try to tell you about what this equation is actually telling you. It looks at the amount of genetic variability within the total species. That's what T stands for. So that would be all humans living on planet Earth. And it compares it to various subgroups within the human species that we define in various ways. So for example, we could define these groups 
by their location on continents, like the African continent, the European continent, Eurasia, East Asia, the Pacific Islands, etc. We can then compare the amount of genetic variation between the total genetic variation of species and each of its subgroups. And this gives us this statistic, FST, and we do this across all the loci for which we have data. And now that we do whole genome sequencing, we have data for all the loci. This statistic is bounded by one as its highest value, which means if you got an FST of one, that would say all your groups are really different from each other, and you have subspecies or geographical races. If you got a value of zero, it would tell you you have one huge mixing population that mixes with all population areas all around the world. Now, Wright came up with a threshold value for which we should expect the existence of geographical races. That threshold value was essentially 0 0.250, or one quarter. Now, many people confusedly believe that Wright's calculation was arbitrary. But in fact, 0.250 is the probability at which you have a significant chance of having genes that are different in all your subpopulation. So if you exceed the 0.250 value, you have a very good probability that you have groups that are really genetically diverged from each other, and you would call these subspecies or geographic races. We've measured this in humans. Now the value calculated from this sample, which is based upon 125 medically relevant genes, is 0.156. So this is worldwide. This does not exceed Wright's threshold of 0.250. Now note that there are species up here that do exceed Wright's threshold. There are plenty of them, and there are reasons why these species should exceed Wright's threshold. For example, things like white-tailed deer, gray wolves in North America, African wildebeest, there are reasons why these things would exceed that threshold. And the reason is that their species range has been cut up by human activity, and their populations are separated from each other and can no longer mate with each other. This, by the way, has never happened for our species anatomically modern humans. We are a young species that originated in Eastern Africa, stayed there for 100,000 years before anyone left, and then when people began to leave, they began to diffuse slowly around the world, maintaining high levels of gene flow between all world population centers. We could actually calculate using Wright's model, island model diffusion, how much migration it takes to get that 0.156 value. And it's an amazingly small number. It takes four individuals per thousand years, moving between the world's major population centers and having children with somebody that wasn't from their population center. Four individuals per thousand years to maintain this level of genetic uniformity. Does anybody doubt that in the last thousand years, four people have moved back and forth between the world's major population centers? I certainly don't. Uh, there was this thing called the transatlantic slave trade that moved millions of people. <laughs> there was this thing called the Mongol invasion and other examples of populations moving around the world and interbreeding, and that's the key. Moving is not the key. Interbreeding is the key. I told you that we have modern whole genome sequencing. The data that you saw from Templeton, that sequencing was probably protein electrophoresis. So those are old data. This is the kind of data we get now with whole genome sequencing. Coding regions are things that make protein products that actually make you, you. 
And when we look at FST across human chromosomes, and this is a calculation between Europeans and Africans, in coding regions, you will see that FST values are extremely low, 0 0 0.085, 0 0.087, 0 0.074, 0 0.103, 0 0.098. And this is because natural selection acts very strongly against deleterious genes in coding regions. And so we tend to be extremely uniform in areas that are actually making proteins that make people people. In the non-coding regions, that is, these are areas that don't code a protein. They might, in fact, have some regulatory roles, but you'd have to demonstrate that. But because these are non-coding regions, the force of natural selection against deleterious mutation here disappears. And so you can accumulate mutations in these regions of the genome precisely because natural selection is generally not concerned with it. And so therefore, you get higher values of FST. But notice, you're still not getting values higher than Wright's threshold of 0.250. And that's where natural selection isn't acting at all, or its force is extremely weak. When we look at FST worldwide, it doesn't support the existence of distinct clusters, which is what you would find if you really did have biological races. Noah Rosenberg, in 2005, studied the effect of geographic distance and barriers to migration on population subdivision. The model there suggested that FST was a function of geographical distance, barriers to migration, such as the Sahara Desert, the Himalayas, the oceans. And after studying pairwise FST, meaning two populations compared for their genetic variability, um, they found that FST was equal to the equation. They concluded that barriers to gene flow accounted for a small amount of the variance in FST. However, isolation by distance accounted for the bulk of the variance at 69%. Essentially, people who live closest to each other share more genes in common than people who live farther apart. So what you see here is geographical distance, and it's rooted on Eastern Africa. Why do we root on Eastern Africa? That's where humans started. So if there really were biological races, you might have a group like this and a bunch of empty space. Group here, a bunch of empty space. Group here, a bunch of empty space. You start seeing empty space when you're looking at populations that are the farthest away from each other in geographical distance. So what this shows is that human genetic variation is a continuum. And so therefore, any place that you want to like draw lines, oh, here's my first race. Oh, no, I want this to be a race. No, you don't like that? Let's choose this to be a race. Is entirely arbitrary. Now, this is illustrated by the use of modern clustering algorithms like structure. Now, in another paper, I talk about the limitations of structure analysis, so I'm not going to talk about that tonight. I'm going to let you assume that structure is okay for now, because it's really not. But let's assume it's okay for now. So here's the interesting thing. These are all clusters devised by an algorithm designed to cluster. Here we have a, an algorithm designed to cluster. And what's interesting is that each one of these clusters is statistically significant. But the more clusters here explains more variation in population. So if you really had to have human races, if that really was what you needed, you could have two, the blue one and the yellow one. And the yellow one starts over here in Sahara, Africa, goes all the way over here to Europe, and then the blue one starts. Now notice, this would be very different from the socially defined schemes of race that we currently use. Or you could have three and so forth. So Sarah Tishkoff's group found the most genetic variation 
was explained by the 14 cluster method. Now note, eight of these clusters are in Africa. And then there's this blue one that goes from sort of Europe to somewhere in, I think it says India. And then you've got this purple one starting in India. And then you've got this, this one here that sort of starts in Eastern Asia. If we were gonna use this type of analysis to define human races, understand there would be eight human races in Sub-Saharan Africa and then maybe four more in the rest of the world combined. So this notion of thinking that Africa is just like one place, like in the Tarzan movies, now where are we going? We're going to Africa. I don't know many people when you ask them, oh, I'm going on vacation this summer, and they say, where are you going? Oh, I'm going to Europe. Now people would say, I'm going to France, going to London, I'm going to Germany, I'm going to Russia. Africa is not one place, and there's a huge amount of genetic variability in Sub-Saharan Africa. So much so that if an asteroid came from outer space, landed in Central Europe, Asia, and destroyed all the people in Europe and Asia, 85% of human genetic variability would still remain in Sub-Saharan Africa. Our social conceptions don't actually match our biological diversity. In April of 2014, I was giving a lecture on the genomics of evolutionary convergence at Stanford University's Center for Computational Evolutionary and Human Genetics. My hosts included Dr. Marcus Feldman and Noah Rosenberg. And over dinner, we discussed Wade's troublesome inheritance. Wade based most of his analysis in troublesome inheritance on Noah Rosenberg's work. So I said to him, I said, Noah, if you think that Wade is misrepresenting your work, then you have an obligation to say this publicly. And shortly after our discussion, a letter repudiating Wade's claims appeared in the New York Times Review of Books on August 8, 2014. This was signed by 143 population geneticists, myself included. And basically, it said human biological variation does not match our socially defined racial schemes. Now, this paper came out in Science on February 5, 2016. I read this in draft form. It came out of Sarah Tishkoff's group at the University of Pennsylvania. And basically, they say in this statement that the use of biological concepts of race in human genetic research is problematic at best and harmful at worst. Modern population in human genetics recognizes that human beings have geographically based genetic variation. But that genetic variation does not match the socially defined racial groups that we have produced throughout our history. So yes, we have variability. No, we have no evidence that these, this variability justifies the assignment of groups into biological races. Now that brings me to the second portion of, our, of my talk. Saying that that's true doesn't get around biological determinism. Biological determinism is the notion that there is a simple relationship between biological features of individuals or groups and their position in society. Biological determinism is ancient. You find it in the writing of the Greeks, in the Chinese, and in the Hebrews. Biological determinism can be creationist or it can be evolutionary. And originally, America's racism was entirely creationist. It only shifted to evolutionary racism after the ascendancy of evolutionary thinking in biology in the 20th century. But for the first 300 years or so of American racism, it was entirely rooted in American religious belief. Biological determinism generally means genetic when applied to biological. And I want to make it very clear that all biological features 
are determined by genetic sources, environmental sources, now what we would call epigenetic sources, and also chance events can play a significant role in the creation of all physical traits that we see in any species. But biological determinism always focuses on the genetic or supposed innate character of groups rather than the other three sources of variation. Biological determinism has been routinely applied to explain differences in phenotypic traits of social relevance, such as intelligence or health profile. I studied longevity throughout my entire career. Longevity is a complicated trait. Generally, every protein coding gene in a genome contributes to longevity. Mortality from populations of fruit flies that we live, we grew in the laboratory under different life history conditions. Um, there's several hundred thousand flies illustrated in this data. But one of the points that we always make in our work is before we can measure any physical trait and assign genetic causality to it, we must do what's called a common garden experiment. And not only do we have to do a common garden experiment, meaning growing both or all the groups that you're testing for genetic differences in the same environment, and you need to do it for at least two generations. I'm absolutely sure that this data and this data are genetically caused because I've done this in common garden conditions. Now the people who do human genetics rarely if ever can do a common garden experiment. Now, this is particularly crucial when we're talking about things that are supposedly genetic causes of things like intelligence differential or genetic causes of health profiles. The populations they've been comparing have never been in a common garden. And so any data that you show, you cannot claim that that difference is due to genetics. It is literally impossible. But these people do it all the time. When we start looking at genome-wide impacts on complex phenotypes, the kinds of things which are described by biological determinists, one of the things we've learned is that genome-wide studies suggest that Europeans actually have a greater load of deleterious mutations than Africans do. People claim the genetically sick African. Why don't African Americans do well on IQ tests? It's obvious, they're genetically sick. Why are health profiles different for African Americans compared to European Americans? It's obvious, they're genetically sick. Why are there so many African American men in prison compared to European American men? It's because African Americans are genetically sick. This is what the literature tells us. But that makes absolutely no sense if when we do genome-wide scans of these populations, Europeans have more deleterious mutations than Africans do. So across the genome, Europeans should be sicker in every physical trait that we measure, whether it be intelligence, whether it be morality, whether it be health profiles, whether it be criminal behavior. If your genome has more bad stuff in it, you should have more bad outcomes. That's not what we see. In the case of IQ, the real question becomes, if more European alleles are deleterious, why are European Americans performing so well on IQ tests and African Americans performing so poorly? To answer that, we really have to understand the genetics of complex phenotypes and how these things are determined. So once again, if we're talking about the variation in any physical trait, it's determined by variation that's caused by genes, variation that's caused by environment, variation that's caused by gene by environment interaction. 
twice the covariance of genes and environment, and variation that's due to the error in which we measure the trait. Now, most of my students are capable of taking a tape measure and measuring people's heights. So when we measure a complex trait like that, you're not going to see a whole lot of error. But when we start making definitions of criminal behavior, error creeps in by the nature of the very definition itself. I'm not going to mention the fact that the country just elected a criminal to the presidency. He's not defined as a criminal. He's not behind bars. And if we were to do a measure of individuals with criminal behavior, the new president wouldn't be one of those individuals in our data set. This is the problem with complex phenotypes and complex behaviors when you have definitions themselves which are suspect. We can measure the degree to which a gene is determined by traits by this equation, the heritability equation. And again, the only point I'm going to make here is that when we do these estimates, they only have meaning for specific populations under a defined set of environmental conditions. If you change the environmental conditions, these calculations change drastically. In humans, where these techniques are not available, and that is to maintain common garden conditions, we often use identical twin studies or paternal twin studies to make these estimates. But again, there are all these hidden environmental factors like covariance that we simply can't accurately estimate. Longevity being determined by virtually every gene in the genome. And as I pointed out before, if we were looking at just a genetic effect, we would expect these data to be the exact opposite of what they are. And so clearly environmental aspects are playing a major role in determining these kinds of outcomes. A recent study investigated associations between fasting concentrations of 35 polychlorinated biphenyl congeners and nine organochloride pesticides in relation to total serum levels, lipid levels, total cholesterol, low-density lipodensity protein, high-density lipoprotein, and triglycerides in 525 European and African-American residents of Anniston, Alabama. Now, what this study showed is that total pesticides were more strongly associated with elevations in serum levels than were total PCBs, and that this association was stronger in African-Americans. So what this shows is that this population is more affected because of exposure to these pesticides. This is generally true throughout a variety of environmental contaminants. Here we're looking at blood mean percent of blood lead levels from 1999 to 2002, 2003 to 2006, and 2007 to 2010. This data is from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey for populations described as black, Mexican-American, and white. And what you see in all these years is that African-American children have higher concentrations of blood lead levels compared to European-American children or Mexican-American children. You can see a full report of toxic waste exposure by socially defined race in Robert Bullard's study, Toxic Waste and Race at 20. This was a report prepared for the United Church of Christ, Justice and Witness Ministries. So it's not just lead. It's a whole variety of environmental contaminants. In addition, social environments can be toxic as well. Chronic toxic levels of stress lead to disruptive changes in brain architecture and dysregulation of stress response mechanisms, such as the hypothalamus pituitary axis and the autonomic nervous system. Under chronic stress, the adrenal glands of mammals, including humans, release the steroid hormone cortisol. 
Cortisol acts as an increasing vigilance and, act and activity hormone within its normal functional range. However, frequent arousal of the HPA axis leads to hypercortisolism due to the overproduction of cortisol. This condition is actually a failure to adapt to stress and is seen in maltreated females as well as individuals under chronic stress. Chronically elevated cortisol levels have been observed in individuals of subordinated social status and with aggression inhibition while act acutely elevated levels are associated with aggression. We also see this in the case of C-reactive protein and stress. It's been shown that living in poor neighborhoods have health consequences. C-reactive protein levels in children from neighborhoods that are considered risky, and these are defined as having low socioeconomic status, high unemployment, and high rates of crime. CRP is a measure of, again, systemic inflammation, and increased levels of CRP are part of a cascade of biological responses to chronic stress. CRP levels in children track to elevated risks of cardiovascular disease in adulthood. They noted in this study that socioeconomic status had been consistently linked to higher cardiovascular risk and that there was a growing evidence to link low SES to metabolic syndrome and type 2 diabetes. In this study, low SES was consistently and highly correlated with socially defined race. So in other words, in the United States, socially defined race and poverty are consistently associated. After controlling for socially defined race, this study found that 18.6% of children living in neighborhoods with high levels of poverty and crime had elevated CRP levels compared to only 7.9% of children living in neighborhoods of medium to low poverty and crime. A recent study shows allostatic stress is related to skin color. Allostasis is a measure of the combination of wear and tear on an individual resulting from acclimatization to various stressors. All of us go through stress throughout our lives. The more stress you have, the more your physiology begins to wear. Cobb et al. have showed that individuals judged as dark-skinned had significantly greater allostatic stress compared to whites, light-skinned blacks, and brown-skinned blacks. Now, this data is from the Nashville, Tennessee Stress and Health Study. Now, Factors that they used to measure allostatic stress were cortisol levels, diethylsterone sulfate, DHEAS, epinephrine, norepinephrine. Secondary measures were diastolic blood pressure, glycolated hemoglobin, high-density lipids, systolic blood pressure, total cholesterol, and waist-to-hip ratio. This leads me to the point that biological determinism makes us believe that these patterns of health disparity and patterns of social structure are the result of innate, genetically determined characteristics of human beings. What we know about human genetic variation suggests that this cannot be true. Cannot be true because, number one, human beings are far more alike genetically than they are different. The traits which we normally use to distinguish individuals physically actually comprise a very small proportion of the human genome. Skin color, for example is coded for by five genes out of 20,000 coding genes. So it cannot be that skin color is responsible for the health disparity and social disparities that we see. Things that counted for much of the human genome, such as complex disease, lifespan, etc., would indicate that if we were solely looking at a genetic cause, that persons of European descent 
would be worse off in all these measures than persons of African descent for the reasons I pointed out earlier. What we do see is a historic difference in the environments that different populations are exposed to in the United States. Going back to the conquest of North America by European populations, the enslavement of persons of African descent, and the setting up of a society whose institutions continue to propagate unfair and deadly consequences for people based upon their socially defined race. Charles Darwin noticed this in his voyage around the world on HMS Beagle. And here he says, it is often attempted to palliate slavery by comparing the state of the slaves with our poorer countrymen. If the misery of the poor be caused not by the laws of nature, but by our institutions, great is our sin. Now, if Darwin understood that in 1839, we are now hundreds of years later, and we are doing the exact same thing. People's lives and opportunity for having a better life are still structured by socially defined race in the United States. If we wish to live in a society where individuals have the opportunity to pursue their dreams without regard to race, then that's a task that is set before the people in this audience. So I thank you for your attention.